the Lloyd's List Shipping Podcast. On the 1st of January 2023, the shipping industry is going to change. Imperceptibly at first, but it will change. And from that point on, life is going to get harder and harder for ship owners and ultimately charterers. CII, the Carbon Intensity Indicator, is arguably the most impactful climate regulation in shipping to date, with far-reaching implications for both carriers and shippers. And yet, the industry doesn't appear to be overly concerned about it. I mean, sure, some vessels might have to slow down, choose a different voyage mix. Hell, we may even have to start thinking about retrofits in a few years' time. But compliance is pretty toothless, and most of the fleet's going to be okay, isn't it? Well, no. Sure, I mean, the immediate consequences of CII on January the 1st are going to be minimal. But this widely misunderstood regulatory shift is going to have an impact, and the belt that is starting to squeeze owners is going to be pulled tighter and tighter over the coming years. It's also going to fundamentally change the nature of the conversation between ship owners and charterers about how they operate ships, and the implications of that are huge. So why is the industry currently so nonchalant about CII? Well, I've been speaking to a lot of people about this recently, and over the next few months, I'm going to be going into some more depth on the coming swathe of regulatory changes that I think are going to have a significant change to the dynamics within shipping. For this week's edition, I drafted in two of the industry's leading experts on the subject. I asked Roger Strevens, Head of Sustainability at Wallanius Willemson, and BIMCO's Deputy Secretary General Lars Robert Pedersen to help me assess whether shipping is really ready for the highly technical and widely misunderstood carbon intensity indicator. Richard, I think this is like the story of the frogs in the kettle. Yeah, the frogs start off in the kettle, the water is cool, and uh, they're quite comfortable. And then the, the heat is applied, uh, but it only gets slightly warmer at a, a slow pace. And the frogs adjust and they think it's fine, and they think it's fine, and they don't recognize what's happening. And they end up and they're cooked. Uh, and the, by the time that you know that they, they have to take action, it's already too late. And I think something similar is happening here because CII year one may not have such a huge impact, but that's not going to remain the case. It's progressive regulation. Mm. And that we only have the, the pathway clear up till 2026. But it would be prudent to expect that the reductions will continue. What's novel with this regulation, contrary to everything that we've had before, is that in addition to potentially costing a lot of money, and I think that's taking a conservative view uh, on it, it has the capacity or the capability, not those not the right words, it has the potential to change the service that uh, the industry offers to its customers. Mm. Because one, one of the major levers to improve scores is uh, is reduction of speed. And that's the same as taking capacity out of markets. Now, put that in the context of what's happening across supply chains in the world. And that should be getting the attention of shipping companies because it's certainly getting the attention of shippers. That's Roger Strevens from Wallanius Willemson. And we'll hear more from him shortly. But at this point, I'm going to pause briefly to define a few terms here, because it's important to understand what CII actually is. 
CII aims to address the operational efficiency of individual vessels. Operational efficiency, in this case, concerns the actual emissions intensity, the emissions per unit cargo work achieved in the real-world operation. It's distinct from design efficiency, which focuses on performance under a narrowly defined set of test conditions. The attained CII is calculated by the CII formula, which basically divides CO2 emitted by distance sailed. Now, this differs from a true operational efficiency measure in which emissions would be divided by cargo work done. Rather than looking at actual cargo carried, CII assumes that vessels are always loaded to their maximum gross tonnage, a fixed value. The CII rating for a vessel is gained when you compare the attained CII against a reference line, which is based on other vessels in the same segment. And that rating runs from A to E, where A is the best. Now, vessels with an E rating, or a D rating, for three consecutive years, they're going to need to implement what's called a corrective action plan to ensure that they achieve at least a C rating, a pass rate effectively under this system, for the following year. Now, the CII regulation is progressive, which means that from 2023 to at least 2026, the required CII is going to be reduced by a further 2% each year relative to the baseline which is set in 2019. And the IMO, we know, is going to conduct a full review of CII by the end of 2025. So, when Roger says it would be prudent to expect annual reductions to continue, that's what he means. We're going to be looking at a change level in years to come. All clear? Good. We shall move on. What makes CII different is that it brings with it the possibility of changes to ocean freight services in addition to compliance costs. Service changes can include longer transit times and fewer ports called. The actual changes that are going to be made, well, that's going to be on a very case-specific basis and can change over time as CII itself changes. In general, the impact is going to be pretty mild initially, but they should be expected to become more pronounced. BIMCO's Deputy Secretary General, Lars Robert Pedersen, explains some of the nuances here. Yeah, yeah. what is important to understand in terms of CII is that for a given ship type and size, all those ships in that ship, you could say band, same ship type, same ship size, you look at the average operation for those ships. And the average operation of those ships in the past becomes the target of all the ships in the future. And and that's an because, you know, some ships have been employed on short voyages with uh, uh, long port states, or you could say with a ratio between port stay and time at sea, which was skewed towards the port states because of, of short voyages, those would be in the low, uh, what you say, in the higher end of the uh, the CII uh, number for that population of ships, whereas other ships would have been employed on longer routes uh, with a, a different uh, ratio between stay in port stay and time at sea, and those would have the better uh, a number uh, CII wise. Hmm. So suddenly the average becomes the norm. And actually, you know, it's it's an interesting thing 
to observe here is that every ship will then have to adapt to that average. It means those ships who used to be trading solely in short voyages, they will in the future have to have a combination of short and long voyages to arrive at that average operation, which is suddenly the norm with CII. Mm. Um, that's a new thing. And, and that, of course, requires um, a different approach from both the owners and the charters uh, uh, to be able to aim for the uh, average, uh, which is the norm. Now, we'll come back to that relationship between the owner and the charter in just a minute, but this implication that CII will force changes in the types of voyages that ships are able to take is an important one. There's currently a lot of owners that I know are scratching their heads and trying to work out which of their ships they put on which routes, and the calculations don't always make sense. If we think about ship efficiency being a bit like miles per gallon in our cars, we know that you get a better MPG rating when you drive at a steady speed on the motorway over a long distance compared to getting snarled up in crosstown traffic on short stop-start journeys. But we don't deliberately drive our cars on a long round trip in order to reduce the MPG. With CII, that may not be the case with shipping. Uh, I think that uh, there, there is a... A real risk about widespread misapprehension of what CII represents and doesn't represent. It's a carbon intensity indicator and what it indicates is the amount of carbon per per unit distance, per nautical mm. mile. I think it might be, many might think it's a, a measure of the amount of carbon produced um, for per unit cargo work, which is an operational efficiency measure. That's what IMO's EEOI is, but not CII. That it does not represent operational efficiency. And I, among the problems, and I think you gave one example, I can offer another, which is if you sail around all year with an empty vessel, you'll achieve a better score, a better rating for your vessel than if it was fully laden all year. And you know, you should ask. Well, what's actually better from an environmental and and product productivity point of view? I think the answer is very clear. But how well understood is this? I don't know. I think that uh, signals that uh, you know that you can pick up are that already there are a number of stakeholders uh, who intend to use these ratings as gospel truth of what the uh, the efficiency of vessel is. And and just let me finish the point by adding and reminding again that. Efficiency, operational efficiency, is affected by many factors, mm. including influential ones that you know the shipping shipping companies don't control. Now, quickly, we're going to go back to that relationship between the owner and charterer because these changes imply a shift in that relationship and a shift in the way in which charter party agreements are going to be made. Back to Lars Robert Peterson from Bimco. I think. For, for CII, we are coming into some uncharted territory. Um, in, a, in a time charter party, the charterer have traditionally enjoyed uh, the freedom to the full use of the ship. Right? That, that's kind of the basis for a time charter contract that the charterer just decides, you know, mm. they want to go full speed or whatever. CII have implications uh, on that. Not directly on the charter, you can say um, 
in the outset, but it is a requirement that the owner targets the operation, uh, aims to achieve the target uh, of, of the required CII. And how can you aim to achieve that if you do not charter out the ship, stipulating, you know, what the charter can do or not? So this this is making inroads to that freedom of the full use of the ship. And that's that's a very complicated thing to do. I mean, this is a a uh, probably century uh, old kind of established um, what you say conditions under a time charter contract that that the charter have this freedom um, and certainly uh, that that have to change. Um, that is not easily done. Uh, Bimco is working uh, hard uh, on a, a, a clause that kind of allocates uh, the, the rights and responsibilities in relation to CII at the moment. And it's, it is not easy to get that done in a fair and balanced manner that, that, that is acceptable to both the owners and the charters. Mm. It's, it's a very difficult one because it's kind of upsetting that, that normal relationship. It's also not something that can be easily controlled. Roger Strevens again on why the implications of CII are going to be down to a range of factors. So I think it's so important to consider what influences, what factors influence a CII rating. And I think you can look at them in three categories. Hmm. There are things which the ship owner can control directly, and they relate to the design, mechanical design of the vessel. And then there are the operator uh, the factors the operator controls, um, such as how the vessel is traded, um, the speed of the vessel can also be uh, largely under their control. And then there's the third category um, of factors, which neither of those two parties control at all, such as the macroeconomic conditions, the amount of cargo there is in the market, the, the level of congestion, pandemics, geopolitical instability. Now, the dilemma when it comes to you know, uh, the developing contractor clauses to manage this is that you're trying to well legislate for a whole set of scenarios, some of which you can control, some of you have partial control over, and others, again, which can be really impactful on the outcome that you have no control over at all. So I, I appreciate that's a big task. So we know that it's a challenging regulatory area, not least because operational efficiency is affected by factors like macroeconomic conditions that are well beyond the control of shipping companies. But when are we really going to start seeing the impact of CII? There seems to be some debate in the market over quite how quickly the pinch is going to be felt. When Braemar modelled the VLCC fleet recently, they suggested that a third of the fleet will either have to slow down next year choose a different voyage mix or retrofit energy-saving devices in order to hit the desired rating. But they also pointed out that over-compliant vessels, porous compliance and liberal design of the rules mean that little change in average fleet speeds are actually going to be seen. All that will probably change by 2026, however. You can say that the, the impact of CII is vessel-specific and some vessels will have a lot to do right off the bat. Um, and so, yeah, I think that it's going to be disruptive from year one for a, a fair proportion of the, of the industry, and that proportion is going to increase over time. I think in terms of you know, the measures that will be taken to, uh, to achieve better ratings, there are three categories. There are mechanical adjustments to ships, things like bulbous bow refits, 
propeller boss caps, that sort of stuff. Then there is uh, the whole area of, um, of operational measures. And I think digitalization has a huge role to play. That's a very interesting area. What's attractive there for, for ship owners is those are measures, a lot of which should, should make sense both economically and uh, from the so CII or environmental perspective. And then thirdly, a big sort of lever in, uh, in this is the, the fuels and use of reduced uh, greenhouse gas uh, life cycle fuels. Um, I think it's a dilemma for the industry at the moment with that because if you look at the CII formula, there's a provision there for carbon factor of fuels. There's nothing to say that that carbon factor can't be well to wake um, mm. rather than, uh, but so far all IMO regulation and its conversion factors are only tank to wake. What we don't have uh, is the, the, the guidance the documentation, the processes uh, that you would use to demonstrate that you're contributing towards a, a CII rating by using such a fuel. Now, it's a. I think the intention is there uh, that you know that using those fuels, that using biofuels, uh, for example, they're a typical candidate in in that group. Um, it's there, but it's a it's it's a somewhat sort of unsettling position to be in, you know, to try and steer your way through that without mm. the, that, uh, you know, the guidance being in place. So inevitably, this is a complex picture. But as ever, a lot is going to come down to how uniformly these rules are complied with and ultimately enforced. Lars Robert reckons that there may still be a few issues to contend with here. And, and I think we have to be uh, honest with us, ourselves here. We don't know yet how this will be enforced uh, from a flag state perspective, from a port state perspective. There was a discussion at the recent Triple uh, I subcommittee at IMO where MEPC had asked the question whether a failure to implement the implementation plan would constitute a a detainable deficiency for a ship during a port stay. And that, that was actually uh, thrown out of the room, so to speak. Um, it, it, it was uh, um, decided at the tribalized uh, subcommittee that that could not be the case simply mm. because there wouldn't be basis for making that determination at some point during the year. Because we have to remember CII is for the full year and anywhere you know along the route towards you know uh, through the year it's difficult to assess whether you will be able to meet the target by the end of the year or not so so it's it's a it's a difficult determination to do uh, also you could say uh, implementation of the implementation plan i know there's a lot of implementation here <laughs> when we say this but but, but but unfortunately, that's what it's called. The implementation plan needs to be implemented, and a part of that implementation is uh, related to the office operation of the of the owner and and the uh, and potentially the charter. So how could you during a port stay uh, go on board a ship and make that determination whether you have implemented this or not? So so I think it's it's 
that was actually a good decision, a, a reasonable decision to, to to say that this is this cannot be a detainable deficiency. But I don't think the question stops here. I think it goes back to MEPC. And I think there is a wish to have a level of enforcement uh, which makes sure that 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 you actually do aim for the required GII. Um, but again, uh, it will largely come down to flag state um, implementation, how they interpret the rules, what they require in terms of you know what goes into the plans in the first place. Mm. How much detail do you need to have there? What does it take to document how you intend to achieve the required CII? I mean, that's that. There will be differences from one flag state to another, and I think that's the big uncertainty we have right now. Well, there we shall leave it for another week. This is clearly a big topic that is going to require much more analysis. And as I said earlier, it's going to be something that we're revisiting over the coming months. So if you have specific questions or issues you want us to look into, please do get in touch. For now, though, thank you for listening and have a good week. <laughs>